Section 15 of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Henry. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Chapter 8 Woman Suffrage and Education. The seventh count in the suffrage indictment declared he has denied her facilities for obtaining a thorough education, all colleges being closed against her. Among the resolutions passed in the first suffrage convention was one demanding equal rights in the universities, and the first petition presented by suffrage advocates contained a clause asking that entrance to men's colleges be obtained for women by legal enactment. We note that this is far from being a demand for education for women equal to that given to men in the universities. Men have founded colleges for women. Men and women have worked together in securing for women every facility and opportunity for education of the highest grade. But the barrier of sex is not broken down in education. But few of the older colleges for men admit women and those few, so far as I have learned from conversation with members of their faculties, speak of the arrangement as an experiment, and give the need for economy, combined with a desire to assist women, as a reason for making that experiment. Meantime, the knocking at men's literary portals by suffrage advocates has gone on as vigorously as if women could obtain education in no other way. In the first suffrage convention ever held in Massachusetts, these two resolutions were adopted. That political rights acknowledge no sex, and therefore the word male should be stricken from every state constitution. And that every effort to educate woman, until you accord to her her rights and arouse her conscience by the weight of her responsibilities, is futile and a waste of labor. The state in which these sentiments were uttered abounded in fine schools for girls, among which were Mount Holyoke and Wheaton seminaries. A rapid survey of some of the educational conditions that led to the state of things existing when suffrage associations were formed will be in place. Learning seemed incompatible with worship early in the Christian era. The faith that worked by love was to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. That great battle between the felt and the comprehended, which in this era we have named the conflict between science and religion, was decided in the mind of the apostle to the Gentiles when he wrote, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. He recalled the accusation, Thou art beside thyself, much learning hath made thee mad. And he hastened to assure the unlettered fishermen and the simple and devout women who were followers of Christ that all knowledge was not if they had not love, that even faith was vain if it led to the rejection of the diviner wisdom that a little child could understand. The great learning of Augustine and the fathers brought into the church pagan speculations of God and morality, as well as pagan knowledge in art, science, and literature. The church became corrupted, 
and a great outcry was made against the learning itself, which was falsely supposed to be the cause of the degeneration of faith. Simons says that during the dark ages that followed upon this first battle between faith and sight, the meaning of Latin words derived from the Greek was lost, that Homer and Virgil were believed to be contemporaries, and Orestes' tragedia was supposed to be the name of an author. Milman says that at the Council of Florence in 1438, the Pope of Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople, being ignorant the one of Greek and the other of Latin, discoursed through an interpreter. It was near the time of the Reformation that a German monk announced in his convent that a new language called Greek had been invented, and a book had been written in it called the New Testament. Beware of it, he added, it is full of daggers and poison. But the tradition of the love that book revealed had crept into the heart of the world, and now awoke. Through what struggles the spirit of all truth promised by Christ was leading and would lead the world the history of civilization can tell. Women shared, in some degree, the outward benefits of the revival of learning. They became, in not a few instances, doctors of law and professors of the great universities that sprang up, as well as teachers, transcribers, and illuminators in the great nunneries. I could give a long and honorable list of names of woman writers and artists in many lands, from medieval to modern times and one of the interesting things revealed by such a record would be the number who were working with, or were directly inspired and helped by, a father or a brother. The court contained some women who, like Lady Jane Grey, upheld the model of purity while acquiring the learning that naturally accompanied wealth. But elegant letters had again become the associate of moral and religious corruption in the courts and the ignorance of preaching arose to combat it in Cromwell, the Roundheads, the Dissenters, the Covenanters. Yet sound learning was not to die that Christian truth might live. Of the band of pilgrims and Puritans that came first to our shores, about one in thirty was college-bred. While subordinating book knowledge to piety, they had learned scarcely less the dangers of ignorance— their first college was founded because of the dread of having an illiterate ministry to the churches when our ministers shall lie in dust. Charles Francis Adams says, in regard to the establishment of Harvard College, The records of Harvard University show that, of all the presiding officers during the century and a half of colonial days, but two were laymen and not ministers of the prevailing denomination. He further says that, of all who in early times availed themselves of such advantages as this institution could offer, nearly half the number did so for the sake of devoting themselves to the gospel. The prevailing notion of the purpose of education was attended with one remarkable consequence. The cultivation of the female mind was regarded with utter indifference. It was attended with still another remarkable consequence, the effect of which is felt up to this hour— only men who were fitted for a profession were given a college education. It is well within my memory when it began to be seriously said, a college education is good for a boy, whether he intends to follow a profession or not, it will make him a better businessman or even a better farmer. 
the country girl is now as a rule better educated than her brother it also happened in those earlier days that the artist and the musician were expected to attain knowledge by intuition save in technical branches the minister was almost of necessity like a magistrate in these semi-religious colonies the fact of the breaking up into various sects which we sometimes incline to look upon with regret as defeating christian unity really saved the essentials of that unity by preventing the clerical magistrate from establishing a church resting upon state authority it was obligatory that the civil rulers should be learned even at the expense of those who carried on the business and the home during the first two hundred years of our existence it would have been almost absurd to expect that women would be extensively educated outside the home the country was poor and struggling with new conditions and great financial crises swept over it there were wars and rumors of wars until after eighteen twelve through fifteen american independence was not an assured fact whatever may be said of the present woman's place in america then was in the home and nobly did she fill that place that she had not been wholly uninstructed in even elegant learning is evidenced by the share she took in literature and in the discussion of religious and public matters and in such personal records as that of elder fonts who eulogized alice southworth bradford for her exertions in promoting the literary improvement and the deportment of the rising generation dame schools were early established for girls and here were often found the sons of the farmer and the mechanic these were established in massachusetts in 1635 late in 1700 girls were admitted through the summer to latin schools where boys were taught in winter and in 1789 women began to be associated with men as teachers in 1771 connecticut founded a system of free schools in which boys and girls were taught in 1794 the moravians founded a school for girls in bethlehem pennsylvania here were educated the sisters of peter cooper the mother of president arthur and many women who became exponents of culture new england began before this to have fine private schools for girls but no great step was taken until miss hart afterward mrs willard had become so successful with her academy teaching in her native town of berlin connecticut and in hartford that three states simultaneously invited her to establish schools within their borders she went to massachusetts but afterward at the solicitation of governor clinton of new york she removed her school to troy in eighteen twenty one it was a new departure and there was ignorant prejudice to overcome governor clinton in an appeal to the legislature for aid said i trust you will not be deterred by commonplace ridicule from extending your munificence to this meritorious institution they were not deterred an act was passed for the incorporation of the proposed institution and another which gave to female academies a share of the literary fund the citizens of troy contributed liberally and the success of an effort in woman's high education was assured as early as sixteen ninety seven the penn charter school was founded and it has lived until to-day provision was made at the cost of the people called quakers for 
all children and servants, male and female, the rich to be instructed at reasonable rates, the poor to be maintained and schooled for nothing. They also provided for instruction for both sexes in reading, writing, work, languages, arts, and sciences. The boys and girls have been taught separately, the girls' school being much behind the boys, neither Latin nor other ancient languages forming a part of their curriculum. Friends are just beginning to discuss giving higher education to girls. This is a fact especially significant in our discussion, because it has always been claimed that the Quaker doctrine that souls have no sex led them to place woman on an equality with man before other sects had thought of allowing that they were equals. Lucretia Mott, Susan Anthony, Abby Kelly, and a great body of the women who adopted the resolution that set forth the uselessness of educating woman until she could vote, and who clamored for her entrance to men's institutions, were all of this sect that has kept its women generally far behind in the acquisition of knowledge. In 1845, Mrs. Willard was invited to address the teachers' convention that met in Syracuse. She prepared a paper in which she set forth the idea that women, now sufficiently educated, should be employed and furnished by the men as committees charged with the minute cares and supervision of the public schools, but declined the honor tendered her of delivering it in person. Sixty gentlemen from the convention visited her at the hotel, and at their earnest request she read the essay, which met with their emphatic approval of the plan she proposed, the employment of women in the common schools and the system of normal schools were projected by her. A teacher's convention was held in Rochester in 1852. Miss Anthony, though a teacher, was not in attendance upon it, but she records that she went in and listened for a few hours to a discussion of the causes that led to their profession being held in less esteem than those of the doctor, lawyer, and minister. In her judgment, the kernel of the matter was not alluded to, so she arose and said, Mr. President, she records that, at length, President Davies stepped to the front and said in a tremulous, mocking tone, What will the lady have? I wish, sir, she said, to speak to the question. What is the pleasure of the convention? asked Mr. Davies. A gentleman moved that she be heard. Another seconded the motion, whereupon, she records, a discussion pro and con followed lasting full half an hour, when a vote was taken of the men only, and permission was granted by a small majority. She adds that it was lucky for her that the thousand women crowding that hall could not vote on the question, for they would have given her a solid no. The president then announced, The lady can speak. It seems to me, gentlemen, said she, that none of you quite comprehend the cause of the disrespect of which you complain. Do you not see that as long as society says a woman is incompetent to be a lawyer, minister, or doctor, but has ample ability to be a teacher, every man of you who chooses this profession tacitly acknowledges that he has no more brains than a woman. Would you exalt your profession? Exalt those who labor with you. Would you make it more lucrative? 
increase the salaries of the women engaged in the noble work of educating our future presidents, senators, and congressmen. Several thoughts arise in regard to this scene, which was so strongly in contrast with the conduct of Mrs. Willard or any of the great educators. Miss Anthony gave no reason for her belief that the entrance of woman upon the other professions would raise either the status or the wages of those engaged in the teacher's profession, and as a matter of fact they have not done so. It was not the society that cast scorn at woman's lack of brains which assisted to remove the natural prejudice against her assuming duties that had been deemed unsuited to her physique and her necessary work. Meantime, one year before the Rochester meeting was held, the first college for women had been chartered at Auburn, New York, under the name of Auburn Female University. In 1853, it was transferred to Elmira, and it was formally opened in 1855. It was placed under the care of the Congregational Church, but its charter required that it should have representative trustees from five other denominations. Its course of study for the degree of A.B. was essentially the same that was then pursued in the men's colleges of the state. It was expected to rely upon endowment, which put woman's education upon a new and more secure footing. Suffrage leaders lose no opportunity to represent the church as an enemy to woman's advancement. Nothing can be further from the truth, and in striking evidence stand the colleges, which, while unsectarian in spirit and in method, have been established and cared for by special religious denominations. Dr. Jacoby, in her book, common sense, takes up the tale and says, The Mount Holyoke Seminary, the immediate successor of that at Troy, was opened in 1837 by Miss Lyon in spite of the opposition of the clergy. Many besides the clergy were opposed to the plan for which Miss Lyon was endeavoring to raise money. Her idea that the entire domestic work of the establishment could be done by pupils and teachers was thought unwise and hopeless. In that noble school, where thousands of women have been educated, a great number have become missionaries. When a suffrage convention in session in Worcester wrote to Miss Lyon asking her to interest herself in the wrongs of her sex, she answered, I cannot leave my work. Neither was Vassar College founded from any impulse or suggestion of suffrage agitators, but in a spirit exactly the opposite. The real impetus to its founding came from Milo Parker Jewett, who was born in Vermont in 1808 and was graduated at Dartmouth College and at Andover Theological Seminary. He was active in the formation of the common school system of Ohio, and, in 1839, he founded the Judson Female Institute in Marion, Alabama. He established a seminary for girls in Poughkeepsie in 1855. He had studied law and become the friend and legal advisor of Matthew Vassar, who, being unmarried, was casting about for a method of disposing of his fortune. He suggested to Mr. Vassar an endowed college for women, and visited the universities and libraries of Europe with a plan of organization in mind. Mr. Vassar gladly accepted this great enlargement upon an idea that had lain dormant in his own mind, and Vassar College was founded, 
Dr. Jewett becoming its first president in 1862. I may claim to have been beside the cradle of Vassar College, for when Dr. Jewett resigned the presidency in 1864, my father named the successor who was appointed Dr. John H. Raymond, his lifelong friend. Dr. Raymond came to Rochester to discuss a plan of work, and, knowing my father's interest, I was on tiptoe to hear about the new college. At my earnest solicitation, he and Dr. Raymond and President Anderson permitted me to be present at their discussions. I learned to comprehend the value of womanliness to the world by the estimate that those noble educators put upon it. It was evident that they were arranging for those for whose minds they felt respect. They made no foolish remarks about the superiority, inferiority, or equality of the sexes, and had no contempt to throw upon the old education of tutor and library and young ladies' seminary. They did not sneer at the female mind, but they did talk of the feminine mind as of something as distinct in its essence from the masculine mind as the feminine form is distinct in its outlines. To preserve womanliness was a task they felt they must fulfill, or the women for whose good they labored would one day call them to account. The dictum so frequently in the mouths of suffrage leaders, there is no sex in brain, would have been abhorrent to them. In their view, there was as much sex in brain as in hand, and the education that did not, through cultivation, emphasize that fact would be a lower and not a higher product. They laid that intellectual cornerstone in love, and in the faith that the same womanly spirit which, when there was not college education enough to go round, had said, Give it to the boys, because their work must be public, would find, through the glad return the boys were making, a way to teach the world still higher lessons of womanly character and influence. Since that time, college after college has arisen without a dream on the part of the founders, faculties, or students that every effort to educate woman until you accord to her the right to vote is futile and a waste of labor. And it may well be that the women educated in these colleges will decide that, because political rights do acknowledge sex, therefore the word male should not be stricken from any state constitution. Before the committee of the New York State Constitutional Convention in 1894, Mr. Edward Lauterbach, who was arguing in favor of woman suffrage, said, It was only after the establishment of the Willard School at Troy, only after its noble founder, believing that women and men were formed in the same mold, successfully tried the experiment of educating women in the higher branches, that steps for higher education became generally taken. If Mr. Lauterbach imagines that Mrs. Willard was in the most distant way an advocate of woman's doing the same work as man in the same way, he is unfamiliar with her life and work. Mrs. Willard, in setting forth her ideal of woman's education, said, Education should be adapted to female character and duties. To do this would raise the character of man. Why may not housewifery be reduced to a system as well as the other arts? If women were properly fitted for instruction, they would be likely to teach children better than the other sex. They could afford to do it cheaper 
and men might be at liberty to add to the wealth of the nation by any of the thousand occupations from which women are necessarily debarred. Old-fashioned wisdom, but choicely good. Mr. Lauterbach further said, What wonder that, being so fully equipped in every mental attitude, in every intellectual qualification, they will be able not only to cast a vote, but to take practical part in the administration of the government. A female Solon would be a woman still, and in a democracy the intellectual is not the only qualification needed. This certainly was the belief of Mrs. Willard, and in 1868, when the suffrage leaders were holding a convention in Washington, and were urging that Congress should pass a 16th Amendment admitting women to suffrage, Almira Lincoln Phelps, sister of Mrs. Willard, herself an educator and an author of textbooks, wrote to Isabella Beecher Hooker, Hoping you will receive kindly what I am about to write. I will proceed without apologies. I have confidence in your nobleness of soul, and that you know enough of me to believe in my devotion to the best interests of woman. I can scarcely realize that you are giving your name and influence to a cause which, with some good, but, as I think, misguided women, numbers among its advocates others with loose morals. If we could, with propriety, petition the Almighty to change the condition of the sexes, and let men take a turn in bearing children and in suffering the physical ailments peculiar to women, which render them unfit for certain positions and business, why, in this case, if we really wished to be men and thought God would change the established order, we might make our petition. But why ask Congress to make us men? Circumstances drew me from the quiet domestic life while I was yet young, but success in labors which involved publicity, and which may have been of advantage to society, was never considered as an equivalent to my own heart for such a loss of retirement. In the name of my sainted sister, Emma Willard, and of my friend, Lydia Sigourney, and I think I might say, in the name of the women of the past generation who have been prominent as writers and educators, the exception may be made of Mary Wollstonecraft, Francis Wright, and a few licentious French writers. In our own country and in Europe, let me urge the high-souled and honorable of our sex to turn their energies into that channel which will enable them to act for the true interests of their sex. In a woman's club last winter, a New York teacher, Miss Helen Dawes Brown, a graduate of Vassar College, founder of the Women's University Club, and also one of the founders of Barnard College, in a speech said in part, The young girl who doesn't dance, who doesn't play games, who can't skate and can't row, is a girl to be pitied. She is losing a large part of what Chesterfield calls the joy and titivation of youth. If our young girl has learned to be good, teach her not to disregard the externals of goodness. Let our girls, in college and out, learn to be agreeable. A girl's education should, first of all, be directed to fitting her for the things of home. We talk of woman as if the only domestic relations were those of wife and mother. Let us not forget that she is also a granddaughter, a daughter, a sister, an aunt. 
I should like to see her made her best in all these characters before she undertakes public duties. The best organization in the world is the home. Whatever in the education of girls draws them away from that is an injury to civilization. At the close of an article in The Outlook, written by Elizabeth Fisher Reed of Smith College, she said, speaking of their last adaptation of athletics, From the beginning, the policy of Smith College has been not to duplicate the means of development offered in men's colleges, but to provide courses and methods of study that should do for women what the men's courses did for them. Emphasis has been put not on the resemblance between men and women, but rather on the differences. The effort has not been to turn out new women, capable of doing anything man can do, from walking thirty miles to solving the problems of higher mathematics. Instead of this, the college has tried to develop its students along natural womanly lines, not along the lines that would naturally be followed in training men. This sounds strangely like Mrs. Willard, who would be the first to rejoice in the new education and in the old spirit that it can develop. Of course, suffrage claims to have the same end in view. Every college woman must decide for herself where she will stand on the question. So far, there never has been any open affiliation between the colleges and the suffrage movement. We wait to hear a final verdict. A contributor to the suffrage department of the woman's edition of the Rochester Post Express, March 26, 1896, said, Will Rochester give to its daughters the same advantages as to its sons? Or will it say to the girls who have no money to leave home and seek in Smith and Wellesley the culture they cannot procure here? You cannot be thoroughly educated. You have no money. You can have no education. Sit and spin, bake and brew, but don't bother about higher education. Or will the University of Rochester recognize the one splendid opportunity that awaits it, the one last chance to take its proper place and become all that the highest American standards demand for a university? The time has not yet fully come when these same sentimentalists shall say to the faculty and trustees of Vassar, Wellesley, and Smith, will you not give to the boys of Pekupsky, Northampton, and Wellesley the same advantages as to the girls? Or will you say to them, you cannot be thoroughly educated, you have no money, you can have no education, work in the shop or on the farm, but don't bother about higher education? This is suffrage logic, and there is no more reason why the educational institutions in which men study from the age of 18 to 22 should be invaded by women of that age than why women's institutions should be invaded by men. Yet this would be the destruction of our women's colleges. When Miss Anthony headed a delegation that went boldly to force coeducation on Rochester University, she was told that classes open to women had been connected with the college for years. The kind of education best suited to the idea of suffrage is a training in political history and present political issues, but the women who have talked loudly and vaguely of the right of suffrage for years have been the last to present such knowledge. I have read their history, attended their conventions, glanced at their magazines, but never have I come upon the discussion of a single public issue. 
I think those most familiar with it will bear me out if I make the statement that their principal periodical, The Woman's Journal, edited by Mary A. Livermore, Julia Ward Howe, Mr. Blackwell, and Alice Stone Blackwell, has not contained any presentations of questions of public policy in the past ten years. Those whose names are signed to the suffrage woman's Bible, and who are therefore responsible for that disgraceful effusion, have little right to claim to be intelligent instructors of their sex. With an ignorance that is monumental, Frances Ellen Burr glories in the fact that the revising committee refers to a woman's translation of the Bible as their ultimate authority for the Greek, Latin, and Hebrew text, and they add that Julia Smith, this distinguished scholar, is the only person, man or woman, who ever made a translation of the Bible without help. They say, Wycliffe made a translation from the Vulgate assisted by Nicholas of Hereford. He was not sufficiently familiar with Hebrew and Greek to translate from those tongues. Coverdale's translation was not done alone. Tyndall, in his translation, had the assistance of Fry and William Roy and also Miles Coverdale. Julia Smith translated the whole Bible absolutely alone, without consultation with anyone. Again, they say, King James appointed fifty-four men of learning to translate the Bible. Seven of them died, and forty-seven carried the work on. Compare this corps of workers with one little woman performing the Herculean task without one suggestion or word of advice from mortal man. Yes, compare it. Uncultured Julia Smith, stirred by the Millerite prophecies, did the best she could to enlighten her own mind, and should be honored for so doing. But what is to be said of the women who, in this day, in cool print, are willing to show that they have no comprehension of her grotesque errors or the difficulties that beset a real scholar in his noble task? Protest at woman's educational deprivation comes with ill grace from those who have thus revealed their own lack of knowledge of the oldest literature in the world, the model of poetry and prose, the guardian of the purity of our English speech. Educated women desire that woman should do all that strength and time allow in the care of the public schools. The school suffrage ought to be a boon for them, but it does not, so far, look as if women could make it so. The figures of the school vote of women in Connecticut for three years occasioned serious question whether the use of the ballot is the way in which woman is to affect anything. In Stanton Island, ignorance in women voted out education, and a tremendous effort had to be made to vote it in again. The number of men who voted at the last general election in Connecticut was about 164,000. The women outnumbered the men, but the following table represents the school vote in the state of Emma Willard. It certainly does not represent the amount of interest taken in education, nor in the common schools. For each county, for the year 1893, 1894, 1895. Hartford, 1,293, 1,186, 689. New Haven, 973, 949, 570. New London, 
364, 873, 185. Fairnold, 273, 198, 126. Wyndham, 176, 182, 148. Litchfield, 159, 85, 50. Middlesex, 60, 136, 101. Toland, 372, 137, 37. This gives the results from all but three or four towns in the state. Aside from any other considerations, the uncertainty attending the vote of an element whose first call is elsewhere than at the polls is a menace to the welfare of the schools as well as of Republican institutions. One of the grievances of the suffrage leaders lay in the fact that the literary women of the country would express no sympathy with their efforts. Poets and authors in general were denounced. Gail Hamilton, who had the good of woman in her heart, who was better informed on public affairs than perhaps any woman in the United States, and whose trenchant pen cut deep and spared not, always reprobated the cause. Mrs. Stowe stood aloof, and so did Catherine Beecher, though urged to the contrary course by Henry Ward Beecher and Isabella Beecher Hooker. In a letter to Mrs. Cutler, Catherine Beecher said, I am not opposed to women's speaking in public to any who are willing to hear, nor am I opposed to women's preaching, sanctioned as it is by a prophetic apostle, as one of the millennial results, nor am I opposed to a woman's earning her own independence in any lawful calling, and wish many more were open to her, which are now closed. Nor am I opposed to the organization and agitation of women, as women, to set forth the wrongs suffered by great multitudes of our sex, which are multiform and most humiliating. Nor am I opposed to women's undertaking to govern boys and men, they always have, and they always will. Nor am I opposed to the claim that women have equal rights with men. I rather claim that they have the sacred superior rights that God and good men accord to the weak and defenseless, by which they have the easiest work, the most safe and comfortable places, and the largest share of all the most agreeable and desirable enjoyments of this life. My main objection to the woman suffrage organization is this that a wrong mode is employed to gain a right object. The right object sought is to remedy the wrongs and relieve the sufferings of great multitudes of our sex. The wrong mode is that which aims to enforce by law instead of by love. It is one that assumes that man is the author and abettor of all these wrongs, and that he must be restrained and regulated by constitutions and laws as the chief and most trustworthy methods. I hold that the fault is as much or more with women than with men, insomuch as we have all the power we need to remedy the wrongs complained of, and yet we do not use it for that end. It is my deep conviction that all reasonable and conscientious men of our age, and especially of our country, are not only willing, but anxious to provide for the good of our sex. They will gladly bestow all that is just, reasonable, and kind, whenever we unite in asking in the proper spirit and manner. In the half a century since I began to work for the education and relief of my sex, 
I have succeeded so largely by first convincing intelligent and benevolent women that what I aimed at was right and desirable, and then securing their influence with their fathers, brothers, and husbands, and always with success. Why not take the shorter course and ask to have the men do for us what we might do for ourselves if we had the ballot? Now, if women are all made voters, it will be their duty to vote and also to qualify themselves for that duty. But already, women have more than they can do well in all that appropriately belongs to them, and, to add the civil and political duties of men, would be deemed a measure of injustice and oppression by those who are opposed. Miss Beecher, like Mrs. Willard and Mrs. Phelps, made textbooks for the use of her own seminaries, and her arithmetic and mental and moral philosophy and applied theology were among the educational forces of her day. It is one of the significant signs of the times that science and education, as well as philanthropy, are occupying themselves just now with childhood and motherhood and housewifery. Mrs. Willard's high ideal of womanliness is beginning to be set forth by the electric light of modern thought. End of section 15. Recording by Jennifer Henry.